Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? It's time for the tech news for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. And we're going to start this episode off with a new segment that I would like to call Blame the Robots. So the Washington Post published an article by Pranshu Verma titled AI is starting to pick who gets laid off, which is perhaps a bit sensationalized once you read the actual story, but maybe only a little bit sensationalized. All right, so here's how this all unfolds. There are software packages and various services and algorithms that some hiring managers rely upon in order to do kind of a pass filter across job applicants in order to narrow down the search. Uh, there are companies that offer that very service, and it starts to make sense if you're hiring at a company that gets a lot of attention. So let's say that you're a popular company, you have fairly rare job openings, and you get lots, like maybe thousands of applicants per job that you list. Well, you probably need some help 
whittling down the applicant list to get to a manageable pool of potential hires, right? Like you need something to separate the cream from everything else. It's not easy to do, especially at really high volumes. And so these services and software packages essentially reduce applicants down to data points, and they kind of have to. And depending on how tough that filter is, folks can get weeded out. Sometimes a lot of folks, maybe you get down to like less than a dozen applicants out of thousands. Has to be pretty brutal. Well, this article postulates that we could see the reverse come into play as well, that a company might lean on similar software and services to identify the people who contribute the least to the company or perform at a level that's considered to be below their peers. Therefore, they could be candidates for layoffs when the corporate overlords deem that it is time to reduce headcount in these troubling times. And therein lies the story, right? That an algorithm might determine that you are expendable. Instead of your human boss, and I am aware that I'm making an assumption here that your boss is in fact human, some program, you know, some freaking robot has determined that you're getting laid off. It sounds positively dystopian, doesn't it? And with big tech companies laying off thousands of folks over this year and the previous year, it's easy to imagine managers shrugging off the responsibility of telling someone they no longer have a job by leaving it to the old zeros and ones of a presumably objective and emotionless system. But this in turn brings up other problems. As I have mentioned in tons of episodes, one of the many problems we have in AI systems can come down to unintended bias within the system itself. So if the system is biased, it could end up targeting employees of specific ethnicities or backgrounds. Now, Verma makes this argument in the Washington Post article. He says that if the algorithm were to, say, determine that people of color have a higher incidence rate of leaving their jobs, that a person of color is more likely to leave their job than, say, their white colleagues, well, then the system might naturally start to target employees who happen to be people of color for the purposes of layoffs. But then you're getting into very dangerous legal and ethical territory. It's as if you're targeting these specific people because of their race. Also, I'm not sure how well an algorithm can actually judge a person's contributions. Presumably, Stuff from employee reviews and such would play a big part. But in highly collaborative work, a person could act as the sort of linchpin that keeps a team working really well together, even if they themselves don't have the highest numbers on whatever the deliverables are. So in my opinion, relying on AI to make or even guide decisions regarding layoffs is really a bad move all around. It can make sense in the applicant phase, but in layoffs, I would say avoid it. Uh, it doesn't look good for the company. It could ultimately lead to choices that will harm the overall organization in the long run. Uh, in this article, Verma mentions that while folks at Google wondered if perhaps they had been laid off due to an algorithm choosing them because there didn't seem to be much rhyme or reason to the layoffs, the company denies making use of anything of the sort. There's kind of a distinct lack of cases where we know that an algorithm definitively played a part 
in layoffs. However, Verma in the article also cites a survey that showed 98% of HR managers, uh, there were 300 of them participating in the survey, had said that they planned to rely on software and algorithms to help make such decisions about layoffs this year. So even if you were to argue it hasn't happened yet, it looks like it's going to happen real soon. My guess is we'll see some high-profile cases where some company relies too heavily on algorithms, and it'll come back to haunt them, perhaps only in PR, but it will be a big blowback. And then maybe then we'll start to see people form best practices around the whole thing. Uh, I still think it feels a bit like shirking responsibility, in my opinion. If the top brass decides that layoffs are necessary, then they are obligated to make each and every layoff decision transparent and honest. I think they owe their employees as much. And it's really infuriating because you'll see managers who get a directive saying, you have to apply this artificial bell curve to your to your uh, the employees who are reporting to you. We heard a story about that just a couple of weeks ago where a director actually essentially was fired for refusing to follow that because it arbitrarily requires managers to assign people as low performers, even if you don't have any low performers on your team. And that just, again, seems inherently unfair. I feel like relying on AI to make these choices also is inherently unfair and can miss some really important factors that may not reduce down to pure data. But we've got a lot of other AI news to get through today. Uh, a lot of it is bad. I'm not going to lie. And our next story comes from Vanderbilt University, the Peabody College at Vanderbilt. Uh, and that college's Office of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion sent out a message to students in the wake of the terrible shooting at Michigan State University. And clearly, this was a delicate task that needed empathy and support. It needed a message that showed that Vanderbilt staff have students and their welfare at the top of their priority list. So, of course, they used ChatGPT to help craft the message. This pretty much sent me spiraling, y'all, because passing the buck to AI to handle things that are this important, things that intrinsically involve a very human connection, it just feels beyond short-sighted and crass to me. At best, you could say this was a poor decision, but at worst, it implies that leadership has little to no regard for students, and instead will just lean on the robots to handle the tough stuff. Anyway, the end of the message contained the line, paraphrased from OpenAI's ChatGPT AI language model, personal communication. And at least the word paraphrase indicates that there was human involvement in taking the generated message and shaping it properly for students. So it was a collaborative effort, you could say. But still, the fact that staff tapped AI in the first place to help with such a sensitive matter doesn't look good. It looks like people who want to avoid the hard stuff and hard stuff as in the human connection stuff, the stuff that has incredible impact on emotion and mental health, whether it's layoffs or counseling people in the wake of a violent act like the shooting at the University of Michigan. That is the wrong way to use AI, in my opinion. That is inherently the realm of humanity and to 
off source that to to AI, it's it shows such a huge disregard for the people who are ultimately the recipients of those messages that I think it's unconscionable. Now, the associate dean and assistant dean who were part of this process have both stepped back from that Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, which is probably for the best. But yeah, this was a really bad use case for AI. Last week, the representatives from around the world attended the Summit on Responsible Artificial Intelligence in the Military Domain, or RE-AIM, R-E-A-I-M. And we've talked about how incorporating AI into military processes and hardware raises really difficult questions regarding safety, accountability, escalation, and more. Reps from many countries, including the United States and China, but excluding Russia, which wasn't invited, and Ukraine did not uh, attend. They were invited, but clearly have other things going on at the moment. Anyway, these representatives all met to discuss the issues of AI in its role in military operations. At the conclusion of the summit, all but one of the representatives of the countries that attended signed an agreement to commit to developing AI military applications that, quote, do not undermine international security, stability, and accountability, end quote. So what was the one nation that abstained? That would be Israel. Now, don't, like, heap tons of criticism on Israel because there are critics who say this entire meeting was largely for show because, according to critics, there was nothing in the summit or the agreement that is legally binding for any of the countries involved. So in other words, the critics are saying that the reps are all like, yeah, yeah, totally. AI killing people would really be bad. Let's totally not do that. But they would have no real accountability to follow through on that promise. Further, the agreement did not include certain AI-assisted or controlled systems that are already in use, like AI-controlled drones. And so there's concern that this agreement, while important, represents little more than just putting on a show to say, yes, we're all aware of this and it is a bad thing. Now, honestly, I, I heavily suspect that several countries, including the United States and also China, will continue incorporating AI into military applications, including weaponized AI. I would be absolutely shocked if they didn't continue down that pathway because there's a very real fear that if you don't do it, the other guy will, and then there will be an AI gap. Now, maybe I only think that because I'm a child of the 70s and 80s and I saw how this very similar scenario played out with nuclear armaments. Because boy, howdy, was that a thing. So I would love for us to avoid the mistakes of the past, but I really am skeptical that that's going to happen. Because again, unless everybody is held accountable and agrees to not further that work, someone is going to. And if someone's going to, then everyone is going to, because otherwise you are at a disadvantage. Okay. With all that doom and gloom out of the way, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I've got some more news items to talk about. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. 
Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learned something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. We're back. Now, I still have a couple more AI stories, but these are not quite as apocalyptic as the ones we started off with. The one is that Clark's World magazine, which has been publishing fantasy and science fiction stories online since 2006, has temporarily stopped accepting submissions. Why? Because apparently the magazine has received too many AI-generated submissions, and until they have access to better tools to detect those kinds of things, they have chosen to hold off accepting any more. That's both understandable and it stinks. Not that I think the magazine made the wrong call here. I think this is the right call. But rather, uh, it stinks because there are genuine authors and would-be authors out there who have great stories to tell, and they're seeing an outlet closed off to them, at least for now. And it's all thanks to AI-generated stories. Now, I think in most cases, the AI-generated stuff has to be a collaborator kind of relationship. Because in my own experience, the stories generated by AI, they aren't very good. Like, grammatically, they work and, you know, you, you get some interesting descriptions and stuff, but the actual stories tend to be pretty mundane and uninteresting. I imagine that 
most folks who are using AI are leaning on it for stuff like generating initial ideas, maybe shaping a certain part of the narrative, uh, at least any stories that are difficult to determine, oh, this was made by AI, right? If they haven't done any massaging, it often is pretty easy to detect that it's AI, or at the very least, it's easy to detect that's not a very good story and it wouldn't pass the bar for publication. But still, here's another example of how AI can end up harming creative types, whether it's from the unauthorized copying of their style or displacing them from the creator community. Insider reports something that I think most folks already have a pretty good handle on, and that is the emergence and reception to chat GPT probably means we're going to see a whole bunch of copycats in the very near future. And to be clear, chatbots have been a thing for years. I'm sure you're all aware of that. In fact, uh, someone who was once in the business of reporting on tech, a person whom I know and respect and like very, very much, ended up working at a company that developed sophisticated chatbots. But these were tools that were intended for narrow use cases, something that would work well within the confines of a particular company's services and processes. The stuff we're seeing now is made to be more general purpose. And with that comes the problems of reliability and accuracy, as well as transparency. It is easier, not easy, mind you, but easier to build a reliable and accurate tool that works within an enclosed system, like the customer service arm of a consumer-facing company. But it's another thing when it's just, you know, free-range AI chatbot. And meanwhile, the guy who runs the company that made ChatGPT has said repeatedly that he thinks ChatGPT isn't that good, or at least it is far from perfect. And yet we're currently living through a, a buzzy, hyped, a heightened age of ChatGPT and its peers like, like Bard from Google. TechCrunch has a piece titled the AI photo app trend has already fizzled new data shows. And you should totally check out this article. The author of the piece, Sarah Perez, lays out some of the data, including download numbers and revenue. And she shows that while the text-to-image AI tools initially made a really big splash when they started to emerge, particularly late last year, excitement has dropped off considerably since then. There's been a lot of backlash in the space, ranging from artists who are understandably upset to see their style co-opted by AI, to users who are concerned that the tools can create inappropriate images far too readily, and that any you know, restrictions that are designed to limit that sort of stuff aren't always the best. Whether those actually played a big part in cooling this trend, or maybe it was just that folks were getting tired of the shiny new thing and they had already moved on, I am uncertain, but my guess is that we're going to see the space continue to evolve, perhaps with fewer players as this goes on, if some of them find it too difficult to cover costs with the declining revenues. But I don't think AI-generated imagery is going to just go away at this point. Now, that being said, one fun story, or at least in my opinion it's fun, that relates to the AI-generated imagery involves a robot from Carnegie Mellon University. So it's a robot arm that has the name Frida, which, yes, is both a, a, a tribute to Frida, the artist, and is an acronym that stands for Framework and Robotics Initiative for Developing Arts. 
And it also generates images based on text prompts. Only in this case, the images it makes are not digital images. They're not computer-generated images. They are real-world paintings. You have a robot arm that paints with actual brushes and actual paint. It creates works of art based off text input and directions. According to TextBot, it takes about an hour from the point where the robot receives input in the form of the text to the point where it begins to paint because it actually has to plot out how it's going to physically paint this. How are the brush strokes going to go? How long are they going to go? How much pressure is going to be used? What style is it going to follow? And that's very understandable because as we all know, there are different strokes for different folks because the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. Shout out to me if you get that reference. Anyway, the roboticists and engineers are quick to say that Frida isn't an artist. Frida is a collaborator. Frida is not creative. Frida just follows instructions as best it can. Painting the subject of the art in the style that was dictated by its collaborator. Anyway, I just thought this was a neat take on AI-generated images. Somehow it feels different that because it's a, you know, a physical painting. It's something that you could hold or put into a frame and hang on a wall or, you know, something you could rip apart in rage as robots get another art commission and you don't. Now, finally, we're off of the AI stories and we can get to everything else. So next up, part of the big news this week is Meta really shook things up on Sunday, announcing that the company is introducing a subscription service called Meta Verified. It's just in the testing phase now. And, you know, the plan is to widely deploy it, but we'll see if things go poorly in the test markets that Meta is trying out at the moment. But essentially, this subscription service is a verification tool. Users would have to submit proof that they are who they claim to be using government issued ID, for example. And in return for 12 bucks a month, or 15 bucks a month if you're doing it on iOS or Android because Google and Apple take their own cut of the fee. You then get a little blue badge on Facebook and or Instagram saying you're bona fide. On top of that badge, subscribers will also have access to services that are meant to protect against imposter accounts. They're supposed to get better customer support and they're supposed to get improved discoverability when folks are actually searching for them which in my opinion is stuff that should really be standard for all users, whether they're paying a subscription or not. I think it's kind of bullpucky to say one of the benefits to verification is that Meta will make sure other folks aren't trying to impersonate you. I mean, arguably, this is a bigger problem for notable folks like celebrities and brands. And I'm not talking me. I'm talking real celebrities. <laughs> I have no illusions that I'm a celebrity. But I've still seen plenty of instances of friends being impersonated as someone has either gained access to their account or created a copy account in an attempt to fish for data. Like they, this is still something that affects the average person on these platforms. It's not just for the celebrities. But yeah, Meta's facing issues with revenue for a lot of different reasons. So it's not surprising that the company is now introducing this subscription feature. It just feels like the quote-unquote benefits of the service are things that really everyone on the platform should have access to by default. 
maybe I'm just being unreasonable here. Today, Microsoft will attempt to defend its planned acquisition of Activision Blizzard in the EU in a meeting that's behind closed doors in Brussels. Previously, EU regulators indicated that they would block the purchase, saying it would result in less competition in the video game space and allow Microsoft to engage in actively anti-competitive practices such as preventing other platforms, like Sony PlayStation, from having access to popular video game franchises, like Call of Duty. Earlier, Microsoft reps signed a deal with Nintendo reps that legally binds Microsoft to bring Call of Duty titles to Nintendo platforms for 10 years, and further, that all titles will be available on Nintendo platforms the same day that they come out for Xbox platforms, with, quote, full feature and content parity, end quote, between these versions, meaning Nintendo won't have to be happy with a watered-down version of Call of Duty, it's going to get the real thing, just like Xbox is. This puts pressure on Sony to make a similar agreement, or else Microsoft could argue, before the EU regulators, that Microsoft has made attempts to ensure fairness between the various console companies, but Sony isn't playing ball on purpose in an effort to scuttle the deal. Surprisingly, at least to me, the Communications Workers of America, the CWA, a union organization here in the U.S., has also urged the EU to approve the acquisition deal. They say that Microsoft has been more receptive to attempts at unionizing than Activision Blizzard has, and that without Microsoft's oversight, employees at Activision could find themselves facing tough managerial resistance to unionizing. By the time you hear this, a decision has probably been made one way or the other. But as I write this episode, it has yet to be announced. And again, the meeting is behind closed doors, so it might be a little while before we find out what the results are. Corporate employees at Amazon are looking at decreased compensation this year, like an actual pay cut. Now, the reason for that is because some of their compensation is tied up in stock units. So as part of their salary, Amazon corporate workers get stock in Amazon. However, Amazon stock price has taken some massive hits over the last year, and that means that the stocks awarded to corporate employees are worth much less than they were a year earlier. That's particularly tough because when Amazon structures its salary deals, they are at least partly based on the idea of the stock having a value of around $170 per share. So in other words, that's part of the justification of, yes, your salary is X amount of dollars instead of Y, because you're also being compensated by stock units that are considered to be worth $170 per share. However, at the time of recording, Amazon stock is currently at $94.58 per share, so uh, a little more than half of what it was when these salary figures were first calculated. So if the cash part of your salary is dependent upon the fact that the rest of your compensation is coming in the form of stocks that were calculated at $170 per share, it means you're getting significantly less per year. On top of that, the company has been laying off thousands of employees. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some managers over at Amazon who were giving wistful glances toward chat GPT when it comes time to communicate these issues to their team members. Okay, I've got a couple more stories to talk about, including one that's going to get me all head up again. But before we get to that, uh, I'm going to take a quick break. And so are you, but we'll be right back. Working remotely, 
Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Okay. Here's where Jonathan gets upset for multiple reasons. All right, so our next story is that Torrent Freak reports that filmmakers are demanding to know the identities of certain Reddit members who have been active in subreddits and talked about content piracy, like the illegal downloading and distribution of films and such. Hey, y'all, here we go again. Like, I've been through this a few times because I remember the good old Napster days. All right, so the filmmakers want to hold pirates accountable. And that is understandable, right? You know, they don't want their films to be pirated. And that makes sense. Like, this is not just art, it's commerce. And to see people get access to something without legitimately paying for it, that is a problem. However, the arguments that filmmakers and studios make are, at best, facetious. Now, by that I mean, you'll hear filmmakers and studios cite huge figures for damages, like millions and millions of dollars that these that, uh, in damages that these companies and these filmmakers experience due to piracy. But the truth of the matter is, 
you cannot say that with any kind of certainty. Those damages, on the face of it, assume that the people who pirated the content would have otherwise purchased a ticket or subscribed to a service or whatever. And so piracy, based on this argument, amounts to lost revenue, thus the damages, right? Like, we would have sold X number of tickets, except that this number of people pirated it, and therefore we're out X number of dollars. Except you don't know that. You do not know if the person who pirated something would have otherwise sought a legitimate way to view the material. You don't know that you actually lost out on money. Maybe that person would just have gone without seeing it at all. So that's not, I mean, you can't, you can't accuse people of not going to see a movie, right? Like, I haven't gone to see Ant-Man and the Quantum Maniacs or whatever it is, but Marvel can't come to me and say, hey, you failed to see the movie at the theater, so we're going to fine you. That doesn't make any sense. So you can't argue that the pirates would have otherwise gone and paid legitimate money to go and see stuff. Therefore, the company is out of money because maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they just wouldn't see it at all. So pirating a film or a series is not the same thing as someone stealing like a physical something like a TV from a big box store, right? That is a physical item. There is only one of that specific television in the world. And once it's gone from an inventory, it is gone. It is not magically replaced by a digital duplicate, right? That is something where you can look at that and say, yes, this amounts to real losses. That's a lost sale, if not to the person who stole it, to the person who would have ultimately bought it. That you could say, and you could point to that and say, these are real damages. You cannot do that with digital media. The Government Accountability Office of the United States agrees with me. You cannot do that. Does it amount to damages? Is there a loss of revenue? Undoubtedly, yes. There is definitely a loss of revenue, but there's no way to determine the extent of that. And because filmmakers and studios depend upon these inflated numbers that represent the, the quote-unquote damages that they incurred as a result of piracy to try and become like a bludgeon, against pirates to, to cow people into avoiding piracy, uh, it unfairly targets people who may or may not have actually caused any damages at all. You just don't know. That's the thing is that because you don't know, you cannot make firm claims of damages. And yet time and again, we see filmmakers and studios do this. Now, that is... Part of it. I, I should also mention that Reddit is is resisting these urges to hand over user data. And and just in case you were curious, if you were to do something like, I don't know, use a VPN and create a unique email address and only use your VPN when you're accessing something like Reddit and you register for Reddit using the unique email address that isn't tied to anything else of yours, that could be a way to avoid imperial entanglements. That being said, I say that because I don't like seeing companies go super hard against people, but I also firmly believe piracy is wrong, okay? I do not condone piracy at all. I pay for the content I consume or I go without. I even bought a cheap region-free DVD player so that I can 
import DVDs from the UK for series that just never get released over here in the US. <clears throat> Mitchell and Webb look, I'm looking at you. But I still end up buying the actual stuff. I don't just, you know, try and pirate it. I condemn piracy, but I also condemn an industry throwing its power around, making assertions that it simply cannot support with evidence at the cost of people who may not have ever gone to see your Quantumaniac Ant movie. Okay, I'm done with that. Finally, hey, do you remember when you were a kid and you got that mint-in-the-box original iPhone? The 2007 iPhone. Can you remember how excited you were? But part of you thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't open this because this is a collector's item. No? Well, of course not, because you're a sensible person. But it turns out if you had been less sensible and chose not to use the thing you got for the purpose that it was intended, you could have made some crazy money. Why? Because at an auction this past Sunday, an unopened original 2007 iPhone sold for more than $63,000. When that phone came out, it cost $599. Now, if we adjust that for inflation, today, that would be the same amount as around $860 of today's dollars. So $860, but it sold for $63,000 at auction. Actually, it sold for $63,356.40 at auction, which is really specific. I don't typically see it go into the cents like that. Maybe it was a winning bid that came from overseas and it was a, a, a currency conversion thing. But if we adjust the iPhone for inflation, then the value of the phone increased by nearly 74 times. If we don't adjust for inflation, the value increased by 100 times. So why the heck didn't the person who owned this 2007 iPhone ever open the box? Well, actually, there is a sensible answer to this. You see, back when the iPhone first came out in the U.S., and you may have forgotten about this, but Apple made an exclusive deal with AT&T. It became the exclusive carrier for the iPhone in the U.S. And the woman who had received this particular iPhone as a gift way back in 2007, a woman named Karen Green, well, she had a service contract with Verizon, and it would have cost her a lot of money to cancel out of that contract and then start up with AT&T. And that's a whole hassle. I don't know how many people have had to go through that process, but it can sometimes be really frustrating. So the iPhone that she received wouldn't work on Verizon, her carrier. So Green just never opened the darn thing. Instead, she kept it and kept it in good condition. And I'm sure she's very glad she did. Now, I guess if there is a moral to the story, it's if you do not want that nice tech gift that someone gave to you, keep it unopened. You never know when it'll be worth 60 grand. Just, you know, don't hold your breath about it. All right, that's it for the tech news for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Hope you enjoyed this episode and my 
various rants. And if you have suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, I've got one coming up that's going to be uh, dealing with our, our old buddies, the hacktivist group Anonymous. That's coming up soon. Just let me know. You can get in touch with me via Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. You can download the iHeartRadio app, which is free to download, free to use. You navigate over to Tech Stuff using the search field, and that will bring you to the Tech Stuff page where you'll see a little microphone icon. You can click on that, leave a voice message for me, or you can be like Nathan and find my email address hiding out there on the web and just send me an email because that's how we're going to talk about Anonymous. All right, that's it for me. I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.